It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you learning ways to save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. So, got to hit you with something that we started talking about back in October, and that is there was a train wreck coming for Christmas shopping. This year, so many people buying gifts online that would normally buy in a store that it's completely overwhelmed the package delivery infrastructure, especially at FedEx and UPS. The Postal Service doing its thing as best it can, but hey, the reality is there's just way too many packages for the sorting capacity of these package delivery giants and for personnel to be trained and get it done. In fact, there's a report today that there's now 7 million more packages scheduled for delivery each day than FedEx and UPS have any ability to deliver for this Christmas season. That's why, I don't know if you've heard this, but the package delivery services are now refusing pickups at a lot of major retailers after they've already played really rough with small locally owned businesses. And so they know they don't even have room to have these packages at their sortation hubs. So they're like, no, we don't want them. So what's that going to mean for you? So if you're just shopping now for Christmas, you are in Procrastinators Anonymous. And you are in the period of time that you pay more for things anyway. So here's my strategies for you to deal with this. Number one, use store pickup. A lot of retailers offering curbside pickup. You order online, you go pick up the item. And I went with my daughter last night to do a pickup of stuff she'd ordered from Target. And we did the curbside thing where you let them know you're on the way. When you get there, you tell them you're there. We were there maybe 90 seconds before someone rolled out with her items and we had them and we were on the way service is free it's quick and speaking of which we got all the merchandise an hour and a half after she ordered so it saves target a lot of money saved us time it was easy simple and so using curbside pickup or store pickup is a way to short circuit the problem with the package delivery services not being able to do this job it's not their fault nobody when they were doing capacity planning last year for this Christmas, nobody knew there was going to be a pandemic that disrupted all normal patterns. So it's not like they're trying to mess this up at FedEx and UPS. But the way you can deal with it is you become your own package delivery service. You pick up the stuff, and if your people are local who the items are for, Deliver them yourself, and even if you're keeping socially distant, they still get to see you in their driveway delivering their gift. If they're out of town and you're just now getting around to shopping, here's my strategy. You wait to buy their gifts till the after Christmas clearance sales, since 
if you buy them now for shipping somewhere out of town, odds are they're not going to get there anyway in time. They're going to get them after Christmas, maybe even after the new year. So why don't you turn lemons into lemonade? You buy them their gifts after Christmas, and they get them in early January, and you save money. And they still get their gifts not much different in timing than they would have gotten them otherwise. It's time for your questions. You posted for me at clark.com slash ask. Producers Kim and Joel take turns. And Kim, what do you got? This is from Lauren in California. And Lauren says, my son is moving to Nashville for a year of school. I want to get him a car and I'm trying to figure out the best solution. Do you think I could take over someone's lease for a year? I really don't want to buy anything unless you think it would be much more practical to buy something in Nashville and then drive it back to L.A. where I live when he's done with school. If I was to go that route, do you think it would be cheaper to buy in Nashville? I like the idea of a one-year lease swap best if I could pull that off. Well, I love this. I mean, this is a situation where using one of the services where they act as a broker between somebody who's stuck in a lease they want out and somebody who needs a vehicle for a shorter window using these services, um, although they can be a little fussy working with them, but you got Swap a Lease and Lease Trader, I think, are the two bigs in this. And they each have their own procedure where you're paying essentially a commission to them for arranging the transaction. And you have to qualify with the leasing company to take over the lease. As long as you do that, this is a great solution for a one-year window. Because the alternative of buying even a used vehicle, unless it was really a older, older vehicle, the cost of having it for just a 12-month window and dumping it, or then having to figure out how to transport it back to California from Tennessee, Seems like your thought is really solid and a great way to solve the problem. Joel? Clark Tyler in Tennessee says, we're in the market for a slightly used minivan. Where should we start looking? Um, Last year, I upgraded from a 99 Accord to an 08 Pilot, so I'm not used to buying a new two- to three-year-old car. Thanks for your help, Clark. Sure, and it's a tough time to buy. uh, You said minivan did, did... Did he say which minivan he's most interested in? No, he didn't. So minivans tend to um, hold their value better than a lot of other vehicles. And right now they're holding value really well. Uh, I recently sold a 2015 Honda Odyssey. And the value of it kept going up this year instead of down. When I first thought about selling it, it was worth a few thousand dollars less than what it was worth by the time I got around to selling it back in October. And it's just because there's been a temporary shortage of used vehicles. So when you're looking for one, um, there are two places in particular that I would start my search for a minivan. And one is Carvana and the other is CarMax. The two big, big sellers of used vehicles that give you the right to try it out for a number of days, typically a week. If you don't like the vehicle and you haven't violated any of the terms of that trial period, you can return it at any t- you know, for any reason during that time period. And you don't even have to give a reason. 
And so it gives you the ability with a used vehicle to have it checked out by a mechanic, uh, to do all the things you want to do during that seven-day trial period. You also can try local dealers knowing that you need that inspection done prior to purchase because the traditional car dealers do not give you, overwhelmingly, they don't give you that seven-day trial period where you can return for a full refund, no questions asked. Second, you leave the lot, you own the vehicle, and that's really scary with a used vehicle. Kim? James in Georgia wants to know, what are your thoughts on Bitcoins? Okay, this is so weird, because when I woke up this morning, I was thinking, how is it we haven't had any questions about Bitcoin with the wild swings in its value in the last several weeks? And then there it is. So Bitcoin is the most successful of what are known as cryptos. Uh, These are alternative, non-governmental facsimiles trying to be money. And Bitcoin has left both great joy in people and a trail of tears because Bitcoin swings wildly. Lately, it's gone up a lot, down a lot, up a lot, and is higher than it's been in a while, if I remember the last trading. But the thing is, this is not real money because real money would not have wild swings in value every day. It's not acceptable as a payment form everywhere you go. Um, there, there are ways people argue with me about it, that you can get credit cards tied into Bitcoin and all that. But the reality is it's not real money. So this is not even an investment. It is a speculative thing, and any crypto at this point is, because if it was a legitimate form of payment, a mature form of payment, it would have minor, minor changes in value over the days, weeks, and months. So this is your play money. There's money you'd take to the horse track. There's money you'd go to the casino. If you would buy lottery tickets, this is in that category. And you got to be willing to have it be money that if you lose it, you're like, ah, well. And if you make a lot, don't think you're brilliant. Joel? Clark John in New York says, I have a HELOC where my balance is around $100,000. In another year, I'll be 59 and a half. I was considering paying off my HELOC balance with money from my IRAs. Given the amount uh, of this and the concern for tax implications of paying this off with traditional IRA money, I was thinking of using Roth IRA money instead. Do you think this is a good idea or should I pay down this debt at a slower rate? The rate on the HELOC is 2.75%. And by the way, uh, that $100,000 is a small portion of my total uh, IRA's value. Okay, wonderful, wonderful uh, series of thoughts here about what to do about this debt. So what I would do in this case, you don't want to trigger the tax on a traditional IRA, and I don't want you to blow through Roth money because of the flexibility having that money provides you in retirement years. And so what I would recommend instead is as long as the interest rates remain so low on your variable rate HELOC, just pay it off as you can. Don't rush by liquidating retirement money to do that. On the other hand, if we do have a significant spike in interest rates and what you have to pay in interest on that HELOC does go up, 
that's when you would look at a strategy of taking money from either a traditional or a Roth to extinguish that debt. Uh, what would be an interest rate where that would become a priority? When your interest rate is between 4 and 5% on that HELOC, and certainly if it's higher. But don't just try to guess, should I take it from Roth, should I take it from traditional? This is a case if you have a CPA that helps you with your taxes, you want his or her guidance on based on your current income situation and current tax situation in that year, what would be the wisest withdrawal strategy in order to wipe out that HELOC? Kim? Daniel in Florida says, my 18-year-old son enlisted in the Navy back in June. Today we helped him buy a truck and we paid for half of it. We've always used a major insurance company and the truck is in my name. What should we do to insure the truck inexpensively? Well, first of all, I so appreciate your son's service for our nation in the Navy. Uh, second, one thing that I don't know is how much driving your son's going to do in the vehicle. The oddest change going on in the auto insurance market are insurers that charge you by the mile or charge you based on how you actually operate the vehicle, how your son drives. If he's uh, careless and reckless, they charge you more. If he's very careful and gradually stops and starts, they charge you less. So there is no one answer to your question. I would start with who you traditionally use for insurance and then explore other alternatives and do a Google search or whatever search engine you use looking for pay-by-the-mile insurance options. Simone is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, how are you doing? Such a pleasure to talk to you. Well, great to have you here. You've been saving for a long time in something that used to be one of my all-time favorite investments, still a good one, the Vanguard Star Fund. That's it. And have you been saving in the Star Fund in an investment account or inside an IRA? It's been in a Roth IRA for at least 20 years. Wow. Wow. I bet that has performed very well for you over these 20 years. It has performed pretty well. It really has. So I'm just wondering if you recommend staying with it or should I move it into something else as I get ready to retire? Well, you know, the Star Fund never changes the mix of investments and so it's a moderately uh, it's a moderate risk fund, but if you're about to bag work and retire, and this is money that you're going to use at some point in the next uh, few years, start using it. Would you guess? Uh, I'm not necessarily. I really don't have to start using it right away. Uh, is it money that's like deep reserve that you are going to have a pension or something like that to live on? I do have a pension. I do have some other investments. So if you're if you if you don't think you're going to need the money that it's just deep reserve, you could actually just leave the money in the star fund in your Roth. But the alternative would be to go into the Vanguard Target Retirement Fund 2020. If your retirement is imminent, or if it would be sometime in the next few years maybe the Target Retirement Fund 2025. The, the reason you would do one of those is they're going to be a, a choice that will 
become more conservative steadily over the years is it's money that you need for uh, current needs as well as possible future, where the, the star is really not thinking that way. So if it's money that would be way down the priority list you draw on, you could leave the money in the star. If it's money that you think you might use sometime in the next uh, five years, let's say, then I'd rotate it into the target retirement fund choice at Vanguard, which is very, very low cost and would at this point become more conservative as a choice potentially than the star fund. And I think it's neat that you've been able to build up such financial security for your retirement. Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas to me so you can keep more of what you have. Our websites are clark.com and clarkdeals.com. And if you're still looking for things to buy for yourself or for others for Christmas, check out Clark Deals. We're working as hard as we can to give you the best up-to-the-minute bargains. So something that's not a bargain is college. College costs in the United States, as I have complained about for as many years as I can remember, generally have gone up over the last couple of decades at three times the rate of inflation in the U.S. economy. That's why we're sitting with $1.5 trillion in outstanding student loan debt in the United States, as college costs have gotten to the point that anyone except the very, very wealthiest of families in the United States can no longer afford college without great strain in their lives. And college costs, I believe, have gone up so much because of a lack of market discipline because of how easy it is to borrow money. Because college, you know, a teenager and say, yeah, I want to go there. I'm just going to sign my name to all these loans without really a clear understanding about what that means in your life. Well, so the loan thing is still really easy to do, but something else has totally changed how this is playing out. And it's the fact that with colleges during coronavirus being online, a lot of people, a lot of students, have decided, you know what, why would I spend all this money to take Zoom or Google Meets classes? No way. And they temporarily, and hopefully it's just temporarily, drop out of college, or they transfer to a state school at lower tuition cost. This has been devastating for faculty and staff that work at colleges and universities. I saw an item in the Wall Street Journal about how much employment has declined at universities, down 150,000 workers just since last September. And that is unreal. That's according to uh, Labor Department data. That means unemployment uh, or employment at college campuses has dropped roughly 10, 12% somewhere in there. I shared with you before that my daughter's college killed the football program, and I saw an item on 60 Minutes about how a lot of uh, colleges in the Big Ten have been eliminating a lot of their non-revenue sports 
and just all of a sudden the coach is gone, the player's gone, the whole thing right in the middle of an academic year. And a lot of majors, I know at my daughter's college, they've been having all these arguments about eliminating departments and majors. And this is ugly, rough stuff that uh, maybe is being done in a really harsh environment, in a harsh way. But the reality is we have an education system in higher education in the United States that we flat out as a country cannot afford. And so we're going to have to run a more efficient higher education system. And as I've shared with you on several occasions this year, we need to reorient education past high school where the first goal is to teach people a usable skill, uh, something that they can go out and earn a good living with, something specifically that employers are looking for. And I felt that we should turn the whole college economic model upside down, that when students get to college, that what they do first is they learn that skill, and then only after that do they learn the things that expand their mind and all of that stuff, whatever all those freshman, sophomore classes are about. But instead, those classes would come later where the real reason for going to college is to create someone who create the opportunity for someone to have the skills that allow them to earn a living, have a good career path, and improve society. And by the way, it doesn't have to be a four-year college. It could be a, a state-supported technical college, a training program, an apprenticeship, whatever it is. We have a big economic disparity in the United States and a huge percent of the American population that has fallen behind for the last two generations. And the gap is the knowledge gap that's led to people falling behind economically. So if you really want to do something to improve the economic outlook for Americans and for this country, we will rethink how we do post-high school education so that the first job is efficiently training people for jobs. And the second part is what we do to expand minds, broaden horizons, teach people new ways to think, those kind of things. It's time for, for your uh, questions that you posted for me at clark.com slash ask. And by the way, what I just said, I know will generate something else. That's a lot of clark.com slash clark stinks. If you vehemently disagree with my biases, prejudices, opinions that I stubbornly have about education past high school. Anyway, time for your questions for me. Producers uh, Kim and Joel alternate, and if I remember right, it's your turn, Joel. That's right, yeah, and speaking of education, Alpheus in Georgia says, uh, in opening a 529 plan for a child, is it more beneficial for the child if the plan is opened by a parent or a grandparent? Parent. Uh, there are specific benefits that may accrue for the 529 plan to be in the name of the parent, of the child. And so as the parent of the parent, you can give money to the parent to put into that 529 account. Now, it's not the worst thing in the world if the 
529 account is owned by the grandparent for the benefit of a grandchild as beneficiary. This is something I do recommend in the family dynamic where you might have, oh, parents that aren't the most responsible with their money. Um, I remember when I took a question from someone where there was a problem where the parent was aging and didn't trust the adult child to handle the money. And what we ended up coming to is that they ended up having a nephew they knew was really good with with money and responsible be the owner of the accounts. Now, that's not ideal, but that's what we did in that particular circumstance as a recommendation. But as a general rule, if the parent is going to use the money as intended and not scarf the money for their own benefit, you as a grandparent give money to your adult child to put in the account they own for the benefit of your grandchild. Kim? Walter in Wyoming says, we run a small professional services business and we just got word from our credit card merchant provider that a dissatisfied client has requested a chargeback yeah. Yeah, for a consultation that they did a couple months ago. What are your thoughts on how to proceed? A little more info. It's $300 and I'd just as soon not dispute it, give them the $300 back and move on. But I don't know if having a successful chargeback against our firm would have adverse effects for us in the future. Does it, for example, affect our credit? Like I said, I'm happy to move on. I just also want to protect our business. And I love the way you're processing this and thinking about it. So where a chargeback hurts you is if there's a pattern of chargebacks that represent a meaningful percentage of the number of transactions that you have as a merchant processing credit cards, taking credit cards. If this is a very rare event, it has no impact on you at all. I should explain what happens if a business has too many chargebacks. The uh, merchant processor bank will do what's called holdback, where they will, the revenue that comes in from charges, instead of giving it to you quickly, they will hold back a significant dollar amount or percent of your typical monthly charge volume as a reserve against potential disputes. That's the big harm that can occur. Nothing to your credit. If this is something that like you never face, it's never an issue, and you just want to let bygones be bygones and let the $300 chargeback go through, let it go through. You'll be charged the $300 plus a um, processing fee that the credit card merchant processor will charge you, not a huge amount for that, and it should have no other effects on you. Joel? Clark Cannon, North Carolina, says, with savings accounts and CDs paying such low rates, how do you feel about investing a portion of an emergency fund in taxable or tax-free short-term bond index funds? It seems the risk associated with this type of investment is very low, and there's a potential to provide greater returns than savings accounts or CDs. Yeah, in fact, that's a strategy that I do myself, is that knowing that you're earning so close to, I mean, effectively nearly zero, I mean, if you shop around for an online savings account, you're earning half a point to 0.70 of a point, I mean, just not much money at all. So doing short-term bond funds, depending on your tax bracket, whether you go tax-free or taxable bond funds, is a, a potential strategy. You do have, though, 
the chance, even in a short-term bond fund, that in the shorter term you could lose money, that if interest rates rise, the value of your holdings in the bond fund could go down. But it is a relatively low risk, low enough that it is the same strategy that I use. Uh, with bond funds, you want to look specifically at Vanguard. Vanguard has the lowest cost generally in the marketplace on their bond funds, and the cost of the underlying cost structure of the bond fund is key for what kind of return you'll earn on that bond or the bond fund. Kim? Shelly in Ohio says, I have four, year left, four years left to pay on my house. I plan on staying there maybe forever. I have enough in my savings to pay it off, but it would leave me with very little savings left. Would it be in my benefit to pay it off and then take the money I was using to make my house payment and put that back into a savings account and start rebuilding? I would love the peace of mind knowing that my home was paid for, but I'd also be a little nervous until I saved the money again. Just so you know, there is no fee to pay off my loan early, and I am 53 years old. So I don't want you to put yourself in a position where uh, you are nervous that anything uh, unusual happens, a rainy day kind of event happens, and you got no financial umbrella. So if you want to spend down some of that savings to take on that mortgage balance, don't get yourself into a position where you have less than three months of living costs left in savings. If you can pay that off and still have three months of living costs saved, then great. Otherwise, pay down on the mortgage up to what would give you that uh, three-month cushion and pay off whatever of your mortgage that would be, you'd pay off the remaining amount a whole lot quicker having made that prepayment, maybe not immediately, but really soon. And then, yeah, you take that, what you were paying towards the mortgage each month, and use that money to build your savings back up to a solid amount. And it's absolutely awesome, that psychological feeling of being completely mortgage debt-free. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Brandon is with us on the Clark Howard Show. And Brandon, you are a savings maniac. <laughs> I guess so. I am so impressed with how you look at money and create financial security for yourself. So lay your picture out for me and let's talk about what you're noodling doing as your next steps. Okay. So um, at this point, I'm debt-free except for the house. Uh, I've saved $23,000 in an emergency fund. Um, 
And I have now an additional $8,000 just I've been putting money into just a regular savings account. And I'm kind of at this point, I'd just rather not do anything with it until I've made some better decisions. I've been doing a lot of research the past few years, studying, you know, investing the stock market, stuff like that. And what I'm really wanting to do is to start investing it. But although right now in the current climate, being self-employed, I'm going to kind of wait until the slow season, as I say, until spring hits and I feel a little safer. But I'm, I really want to start investing. And what I'm, the decision I'm trying to make is whether to use a Roth IRA, which I know you love, but there's such tax advantages when you're self-employed to having a traditional IRA or a SEP um, because, you know, there's such tax savings that I feel there might even be an advantage to me you know, make me want to put more and more money away because it would be less taxes for me to pay, you know, so. Well, I, I mean, let's, ta- let's talk about who you are and what your mentality is. So okay. you you make a little bit larger than the average income in the United States, but on that income, you're supporting uh, your wife who works part-time and a child, a minor child, and you were still living on a very small part of what you make, saving roughly one out of every $3 you make. Is that about right? Yeah, I would say um, I would say that's about right. And that's fantastic. And you're very cautious and careful. Because of where you are on the income ladder, it actually makes more sense than you might expect for you to do all-in Roth, not traditional. Because... Okay. With the with the Roth, you're giving up that uh, tax deal up front, but odds are, uh, particularly with you being at a moderate income, that tax rates uh, have a good shot of being higher at the time you'd spend the money down the road. With the Roth, you know a dollar in is a dollar out, where mm-hmm. with a traditional, you get the cut in tax up front, but everything in the account, what you put in and the earnings will be taxed. So I would say the Roth comes first, and because you're self-employed, you'd have that post-tax money. You then could put money in a SEP, and that would be your pre-tax money that you would pay, you would get the tax advantage on, and knowing that's the money that would be subject to tax later. So the key thing is you've created all these options for yourself, Brandon, because you are living on such a low percent of your income and and supporting a family on that and having all that money left over you are going to be in a position of extreme financial strength down the road and you'll be able to bag work at an early than normal age if that's what you end up doing so congratulations to you and continued success to you and your family You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.